Good evening. You know, I want to let you guys know some things that are going to be happening. We're going to be finishing the um, John's Gospel here, and we're going to go from here, actually, into Genesis. We're going to be finishing what we've been doing on Sunday mornings with the Beginnings series. That's going to transfer to uh, Wednesdays, and we'll finish the book of Genesis um, here. We're going to fit, we're going to go through uh, four. Yeah, four more uh, study Sunday mornings in the beginning series. And then in June, we are going to Sunday mornings do our core values on Sunday mornings. There's five Sundays, and we have five core values, and we're going to cover those on each Sunday. And then Genesis is going to move to Wednesdays. And we'll probably tackle it a little bit more uh, thoroughly. I won't be skipping as many or any chapters, actually. We'll go through all the chapters, um, but we'll continue to just go through that book. Also, we are going to uh, start doing communion once a month on Wednesdays. So instead of having our love feast, we are probably going to do communion once a month. I'm not sure what day we're going to have a leadership meeting and talk about those things, but just to give you guys kind of a little... Heads up on what's going on, so that's going to be taking place. Anyway, we are in John chapter 20. Last week we talked about the resurrection, and we actually ended on a a question that Bob had that we are going to answer here in uh, this chapter. But we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 10. Again, remember as... We read these things together. If there is something that you have a question about, um, this is the time where you can ask the question. Or if something strikes you as just uh, powerful and has uh, a meaning to you and you'd like to share it with us, I'd like to hear those things as well. So John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Early on the first day of the week. What would be the first day of the week? Sunday. Sunday. (laughs) Wow. She's one of those kids I bet in school was quick to answer all those ones she knew, right? First day of the week, Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which we believe is who? John, okay. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter And the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture what Jesus had, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to where they were staying. And so a number of things take place here in this account. I mentioned this on Easter morning that on every gospel account, although there are variations of what has taken place, all of them begin with the women actually showing up first. 
And I think that that is notable, again, as we mentioned last time when we talked about this on that Sunday, is it's notable because a woman's testimony wasn't deemed very credible at this time, and yet all the Gospels see fit to show that this is what happened. And so if someone was trying to doctor up or make up an account of the gospel, they wouldn't start with the women's set, just because at that time it wasn't prevalent. It wasn't something that was considered uh, credible. But in all the gospels, that takes place. And and so we want to talk about the first day of the week, because the resurrection takes place on the first day, which would be Sunday. Now, if Jesus spent three days and three nights in the tomb, how do we have a death on Friday and a resurrection on Sunday? Any thoughts? Okay, it doesn't make sense. There were two Fridays. Let me ask you this. What is more important, that Jesus died on Friday to commemorate Good Friday or that he died on the, on the Passover to fulfill the Passover lamb dying for our sins? Passover, right? Last week when we ended, we talked about there being a special Sabbath, right? Bob asked that question, what does it mean there's a special Sabbath? And what the special Sabbath signifies is that John's referring to is to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that that date specifically was a holy day. And that was a date that fell on the same time every year, kind of like our Christmas is always December 25th. It doesn't matter if it's a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, it's always December 25th, where the Sabbath is always Saturday. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread fell on the 15th of the month that they called Nisan, which corresponds with our March or April in our calendars. And so the first thing that we learn is that this special Sabbath that's mentioned here didn't happen on Saturday, which was the Sabbath. And it happened actually on a Thursday, okay? That they wanted the Passover that they celebrated, they wanted to have everything settled before the Sabbath. So they had a special Sabbath, which was that Passover, and then they had their other Sabbath, which would be Saturday. And so I don't want to break your heart if you had Good Friday just being very important to you, but Jesus could not have died on Friday and risen on Sunday and it be three days. And so it had to be a special Sabbath, which was the Passover, which would be Thursday. Remember, the day began the evening, sundown, because of what it says in Genesis. There was evening, there was morning, and that was the first day. There was evening and morning. And so the Hebrew calendar was based on the evening and then the morning. Jesus died, and it would have been about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday. Evening would have been the first day, which would have been 
Friday, and then Saturday, and then third, third day, Sunday, raised from the dead. Okay? So that's how that goes. And that's what the special Sabbath is referring to. It's referring to a holy day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and in spite of our holiday of Good Friday, that's not when Christ died. There weren't two Fridays. <laughs> there, were two, there were two special Sabbaths. There were two Sabbaths that week, but there was only one Saturday. And so that's what's taking place with that aspect of the first day of week, Sunday, is when the resurrection came. And that's the event that's taking place here. And we see that while it was still dark that Mary Magdalene came. And, and so it was probably 3 to 6 a.m., when this happened, okay? She's coming, but it's still dark. It's still kind of, you know, that time before the sun actually shines. Now, why didn't she come earlier? Why is she coming on Sunday? Well, what was Sabbath? What was Saturday? Exactly. She couldn't come on the Sabbath. That's forbidden, so Saturday, she can't go there. And so this is probably the first time she actually can make it to the tomb. And actually, it was a custom in, in Palestine at this time to visit the tomb of the loved one actually for three days to show respect because after the third day, they believed that a person could still be in the body. But after the fourth day, when the body would decay, they believed that the person no longer recognized themselves and would leave the body. It's just a tradition belief they had. I don't know if Mary believed it or not, but it was just something that they did. And so it wasn't uncommon for a person to show respects for the three days. But because of the Sabbath, because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this was the first day she could Go and be there. So she shows up there early as she can. I mean, it's probably, again, between 3 and 6 in the morning. She goes there when she can. And she comes to the tomb because she cares. She loves. And we see that the women are the first one who Jesus appears to. And reveals himself to. And it's interesting because we see their love for him. It almost as if it opens up just some ability to interact with him in this way. But before I go on, are there any questions you have about these verses before I go on and talk about them? I just wanted to get the special Sabbath out of the way. Any thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I think I think it depends on what they did for a living, kind of like us. I mean, I imagine they tried to get up as early as they could to have as much daylight if they needed to work. You know, because yeah, I mean, they had lamps, but you know, it wasn't like electricity that we have today. The light bulb changed a whole lot of things, you know, in society, and so, but. Um, yeah, probably just got up early because she wanted to be there as soon as she could. Probably couldn't go at night. It was probably dangerous, you know, with no lamps or anything to walk wherever she lived to get to this place. So she probably went as soon as she could see, but it wasn't daylight at that time. What about in verse 7 where, well, first of all, let's talk about, okay, 
Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay, and we know that's John. Isn't it interesting how John describes himself? You know, how Peter ran, but the disciple whom Jesus loved was faster. Isn't that interesting? And not only, you know, then he says, you know, he got to the tomb, but he didn't look in. He, he probably is thinking, oh, I don't want to go into a tomb. I don't want to defile myself. Peter just runs in. He lets him know that Peter ran right in. But then after Peter ran in, then he goes in. And then I just think it's interesting what a person remembers. Because I don't think John is just trying to boast and say, I was faster than Peter, by the way. Peter is probably older and that tends to happen when you get older, you get slower. But I think this is just how John is remembering the story. And so when people say, well, the gospel accounts are different, well, they're not really different. You know, if one says, I saw two beings and one sees one, well, maybe one interacted with the one and the one stood out. What John remembers is we both ran, Peter took off, but I passed him and I got there first. And then they go in and they talk about the strips of linen that were lying there. Peter came alongside behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the linen lying there as well as the cloth. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Now, why is he pointing that out? The, the, the linens, they were, and what it means, they weren't messed up. They weren't disheveled. They were like, Folded properly, it was almost like they were where they were supposed to be, but there was no body there. It was almost like the body evaporated, but the, the linens were still where they were supposed to be. So it wasn't like someone unwrapped him and left the linen there. They were where they were supposed to be, which I think is kind of cool. You know, it's like, oh, that happened just kind of, you know, Star Trek kind of a thing, you know, be me out, you know, and... So he sees there, and then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, by the way, also went inside, and then it says he saw and believed. It's interesting how he states that he believed. Mary, who loved, was the first to arrive. John, who was loved, was the first to believe. Interesting. And what a, a, an amazing thing to go in there and to believe. What did he believe? Jesus risen. That he is risen. That he was no longer dead. That he is living. It doesn't say that Peter believed yet. It doesn't say that he believed yet. Now, we're going to have accounts that we're going to read tonight, but... At this time, John says he believed. And we don't see the account of Peter believing just yet. So Peter's probably wondering what's going on. They knew something's happened. I mean, imagine, what, to what extent is your belief? And what extent is your understanding? You know, what I think is interesting here is how love can grasp the truth even when our intellect is groping for the answer. 
In other words, when we love, we can believe even though we might not be able to see or fully understand. We don't have all the evidence intellectually, but the heart can still believe and trust even when the mind doesn't put things all together. And love can realize the meaning of something even when the research of something is incomplete. And we do see that with John. He loved Christ and he believed. And as he believes, it says they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now that's an interesting thing. They believed even though they didn't know it in Scripture. Interesting. They believed before they understood the Scripture. We have the Scripture so available that we think, well, to believe you have to know the Scripture. But we take for granted the fact that for most of the time that the church has been around, they did not have the scriptures that we have. They had letters, and those letters weren't with everybody. They would be in the care of the church pastor, and he might have a few letters from Paul and a few letters maybe from Apollos or who knows from who. But they didn't have the entire New Testament, and especially if it was a church in Rome or in a Gentile place, they probably didn't even have the Old Testament. They weren't required to learn the Old Testament, according to Acts chapter 7. They weren't going to put them under the scrutiny of learning the law. And so a lot of the New Testament churches in the Gentile areas didn't even have the Old Testament that they just had Parts of the New Testament. Is it getting cold in here? Gil, can you turn the air up, I guess, or down, whatever? Make it less cold. Thank you. Um, so they didn't have the entirety of the New Testament. In fact, the entirety of the New Testament wasn't even around and put together, compiled until about 300 A.D., and then it was put together and assembled together in one book in Latin. And not everyone understood Latin and not everyone got a copy. In fact, we didn't get a copy into common language until about the 1500s. And so there was no Bible as we know it in the hands of people for about 1500 years. And yet the church still existed. The church still believed. God still works. I'm not discrediting scripture. I'm just telling you how history worked. And it's important for us to understand that because otherwise we start to assume that people should know what we know and we start judging history based on our Reality instead of the reality that they were living in. How did the church exist without the Bible? What did they do? Well, if you don't go through the Bible, then God is not going to honor you and you're not teaching the full counsel of the world. What did they do for 1,500 years?
Were they less than us? Did they not have the full counsel of God because they didn't have all the scriptures? Or did God meet them where they were at? The church in China. The bamboo curtain closed. No Christians, no missionaries, no church affiliations in China for I don't know how many years. The bamboo curtain opens up and there's six million Christians. Where'd they come from? They didn't have Bibles like we do. And sure, they might have had some issues doctrinally. They might not have believed everything theologically correct, but God was working with them and they believed even though they didn't have the scripture. So when you hear faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and you think, well, faith comes by hearing the scripture or the Bible, is that what the word of God means? Or does faith come by hearing the message of Jesus Christ? Because that's what's been taking place throughout history. Now, the scripture is invaluable. It is God-breathed. It is a gift, a treasure that we should relish. I'm not trying to make it less than. I'm just trying to be accurate and truthful to what it's declaring and saying. Yes, Lola. Mm -hmm. The interaction is vital. Um, Definitely, definitely. And when they, I mean, the reason Paul wrote his letters was because there were problems. You know, when the church started embracing some Gnostic heresy, Paul had to write and combat those things and it became real important for the church to learn those things. And so they're being written so that the church can have more information, more uh, understanding about the truth when things start to get confused. And, and it does the same thing for us today. It does the same thing. It gives us guidelines. It gives us guidance. It gives us insight. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction so that the man or woman of God can be established in everything. I mean, that's what scripture is given for. It is to keep us on track, to keep us in line. But it's real interesting that they believed before they knew the scriptures taught this. Just interesting that it says that. It's not, again, undermining scripture. It's just they didn't understand that that's what the Bible was saying about that. I wonder how many other things we don't understand. I wonder, you know, do we understand everything about God? I hope you don't think so, right? I I don't understand everything about God. Now, I'm not coming up with new revelations, not coming up with new doctrines. I mean, we, we are established in those things, but doesn't God still reveal himself? Isn't there still mystery in who God is and what God does? Or do we have it all figured out? Nope, that can't be happening. Nope, that can't. Yeah, you can do that, 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 and that, but can't do that, 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 or that hyphen slash B. You see, pretty soon we become very much like the Pharisees who scrutinized everything to the point where if Jesus healed on the Sabbath, it was against their tradition. And we've made our own new traditions. We really have in so many ways. In so many ways. And and here, belief took place before understanding. And that's kind of the point I think he's trying to make. Before he understood the relevance and what the scriptures taught, there was belief. Yes.
Well, again, if you don't have the knowledge of God's character, then you're, you're going to have problems understanding. You know, that's when you read the scripture and it starts to become, oh, God, the God of the Old Testament is bad and mean and judgmental, and the God of the New Testament is different. And really, it's not that way at all. I mean, the whole story, that's what we've been trying to account for, you know, in, as we go through Genesis. Even, you know, when the flood came, it wasn't so that God could just wipe people out. It was to stop the spread of evil. You know, the Tower of Babel wasn't just so God could mess things up. It was to stop if they're, if these people can do anything they want and they continue to do things that are evil, then they'll have havoc. They'll, they'll reign havoc. And so God is constantly trying to prevent evil from spreading while still allowing man the freedom to choose. And we look at it and we can say, oh, well, God is so judgmental. You know, and even in the movies, I mean, even in, like in the Noah movie, man, God just seems like he's ominous and dark and, you know, yeah. And so, you know, you can come with the wrong conclusions if you don't have the wrong, right understanding of who God is. And so what is the right understanding? Jesus. That's the right understanding. Jesus gives us the clear revelation of who God is. And that's what's taking place here. The revelation of God is being displayed through the person of Jesus. And so John believes. His belief is limited and his understanding isn't all there, but he believes. So let's read verses 11. Let's go to verse 18. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my, my, taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had what he had said to her, the things he had said to her. Okay. Now Jesus appears to Mary. Any questions in this part? Anyone wonder why she didn't recognize him? Well, it says she didn't recognize him. She didn't know she was looking at him. She thought he was a gardener. She did not realize it was Jesus. Is it because she didn't look at him? Did she not understand his voice? Can you remember any other account where people were with Jesus and didn't recognize him? The road to Emmaus. That's strange because they're sitting there talking to him, right? Do you remember when they came up and ate fish with Jesus? When John said, it's the Lord, Peter jumped in, swam all the way, but no one dared ask if it was him because they believed it was him. Why? But what was 
different, why wouldn't they recognize him? Okay? couple of thoughts. It's not... In Luke's gospel, where the road to Emmaus takes place, it says that God kept them from recognizing him. And the word kept is like veiled them. And so it's almost like God prevented them from understanding. And, you know, we can do this even today, like with hypnosis. You can hypnotize someone and you say, you will not recognize, you know, your husband or your wife. And then they go and sit down and they don't recognize them. Why? Because they're able to give them a mental suggestion and keep that from taking place. I mean, we can do that today with hypnosis. I imagine God could do something. I'm not saying God hypnotized them, but I imagine God could do something to veil their understanding. Plus, Jesus is now glorified. And a glorified body is different. We don't know exactly what it does. We've got little clues. We know it has flesh and bone, because we're going to see that later. Touch and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bone, as you see I have. And the scripture doesn't know anything about resurrected spirits. Resurrection is a, a bodily activity. But we also know it can show up in rooms that have locked doors. So, yeah, that something's going on. We don't fully understand what a resurrected body can do, but we see little glimpses of Jesus who has one, okay? And, we, yeah, we're promised to have one like him, too, so that's kind of cool. Well, she was told, you know, because we have the other count, you know, why do you look for the living among the dead? Shouldn't he be alive like he said? So she was there. She knew that... Yeah, she knew that he was supposed to rise again. They, he told everyone that, you know, kill, destroy this temple, and on three days I'll raise it up. Everyone heard that. They just didn't understand he meant the temple of his body, things like that. And, and so she's veiled from some way and somehow seeing that. And when he asks her, woman, why are you crying? Uh, I, this story is so endearing. I mean, it really is. It's almost like the veil allows us to see a depth of Mary that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. I mean, think about it. She thinks he's the gardener. He says, why are you crying? You know, who is it you're looking for? And she says, sir, tell me where you've laid him and I will go get him. Wherever you carried him, I will go get him. She was willing to go and carry him wherever he was to take care of him. She's just like, I'll get him. Tell me where you've put him. I'll go and get him. And at that point, Jesus just says, Mary. And I can just imagine the way he says it is the way he's probably said it for years to her when he's looked at her hundreds of times through that time that they've been together and said, Mary. And she knows his voice, and all of a sudden she recognizes it's him. And it's just beautiful. It's endearing. And and when he says, do not hold on to me, it literally means in verse 17, stop clinging to me. She was not letting go. She had him and was wrapped around his legs and just was holding on or whatever. She was not about to let go. And he says, stop holding on to me. I have not yet ascended. In other words, you can't hold on to me forever. I still have to go. 
And then she, he says to her, go instead, tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. What an interesting thing to say. Why is he saying to my father and your father to my God and your God? What is he trying to convey there by saying my father, your father, my God, your God? Any thoughts? He really is identifying with them, you know, and and so the whole idea of the father who is my father, he's now your father. And the God who is my God is your God. And so there's an identification that he's trying to connect to Mary that the same father I have is the father you have, and the God I have is the God you have. And so there's an identification. You are now with me. Okay? That's the identification that's taking place. Now, a lot of people try and use this to say that, see, Jesus wasn't God because he had a God. My God, well, if he had a God, then he wasn't God. But what he's saying here isn't that, well, I have a God. It's just saying this is my father and this is the God. And it's, yeah, he's my God, but he's also your God. Because remember, Jesus was a man. And even as he died and was crucified and resurrected, he still had a body. He never stopped being Jesus. He's not some spirit thing out there now, okay? It's still Jesus. And so, as a man, he had a God. But all he is doing is saying, now the Father and the relationship I have, and the God and the relationship I have, that is the Father and that is the God that you have. And he is connecting them to the relationship, which is really important because he's also going to connect them to the mission that he has. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. We'll get to that here in a little bit. Any questions? On this portion, he's still the son. He's forever the son. Still is. Verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, now it's purposely said the doors were locked. Okay, so he didn't sneak in. No, the doors were locked. Yeah, he, he's there all of a sudden. It doesn't say how all of a sudden he's there. And, of course, his first words are, are peace be with you, which you'd have to say if all of a sudden you were in the room because you'd freak everyone out probably pretty good. And, and, and really, the words mean may God give you every good thing. That's the idea. So peace be with you is may God give you everything that is good. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Here it is. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, we better stop here. We better talk about this verse here. Okay, first of all, Jesus shows up, appears to them. Cool, that's amazing. Twice he says, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me. 
Now, remember, this is part of our core values that we're going to go through in June. The first value that we have, our core value, is mission is why the church exists. The purpose of the church's mission. And here Jesus is saying, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It also is in the manner that the Father has sent me. That word as means in this way. Well, Jesus came and showed us God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his son, which is our second value. Love is the context for all mission. And so this really does have our core values. Now, a person who is sent needs someone to send them. In other words, when we're sent, we are sent by someone, and with that we take their message, we take their authority, and we also take their power. In other words, the authority and the power that they're sending in, the power of the message. And so Jesus is sending them, but he's sending them in his name, with his authority, with his power, with those things. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the spirit. What do you think is happening here? What's that? They're receiving the Holy Spirit. What about Acts chapter 2? Did they receive the Holy Spirit there too? Is this different? Okay, so what would be the difference between the baptism and this? Think, when do we see breathing on someone, and when was it, and what happened? Genesis chapter 2, God breathed life into them. We also see it in Ezekiel chapter 37. God breathes into these bones and makes them alive. And so the the breath has a lot of symbolism, especially in the Jewish mind. It is the life of God being given. It's important to understand when it says that he breathed on them, it is the aorist imperative which means it's a done deal. It happened at that moment. When he breathed, they received at that moment. And so here is when most scholars would say that the disciples became what we would call Christians or born again. This is when the Spirit of God now became the indwelling Spirit in their lives, and they now had the life of God in them in a new way, the new covenant way, okay? So something is happening here. Jesus is giving them the life of God, but it's different. Now, why did it happen here, and why could it happen here, and why didn't Jesus breathe on him a couple months back? Because he hasn't died. There had to be the sacrifice for the sin. There had to be the ability for the messenger to accept the message. And for that to happen, there had to be the price paid, the sacrifice. Now, they could understand who Jesus was, have understanding you're the Christ, the son of the living God. They had awareness, but they could not carry the the fullness of the message until they had the ability to hold and retain that message. And they couldn't have that ability until the cross and the resurrection. 
which brings an interesting observation. That meant for three years, Jesus essentially was discipling people who we would today consider non-believers. Interesting. Now, they believed, they understood, but they did not have the Spirit of God within them. They couldn't yet because Christ hadn't died. Which means we can also disciple, teach people about God, people who don't have the Spirit of God in them, who have not yet surrendered to Christ. Important to recognize. Just because a person doesn't have the Spirit of God doesn't mean they can't believe. And so our term unbelievers might be actually a little difficult. But people who yet have surrendered their life and had the life of God breathed upon them. Now, what has to happen for the life of God to come into a person? What did they do? They believed, right? But Jesus just breathed on them. He didn't say, okay, bow your heads. I'm about to breathe on you. It's a good thing. Okay? He, he, he didn't go through a ritual. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the, the centurion who has a vision, says, go get Peter. Peter has a vision of the sheet coming down with all the, the Gentile food, and God tells Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, I've, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. And it's a symbolic recognition that God is now moving to the Gentile world. And then Peter goes over to Cornelius' house, and he starts talking to, Porn- Corn- to Cornelius And as he's talking to Cornelius, all of a sudden Cornelius starts speaking in tongues and is filled with the Spirit. What happened? He just believed and the Spirit of God came upon him and then he was filled with the Spirit. Yes. And I think it's it's good to see that, you know, God works in these ways because a lot of times we try to control how it's going to happen. You know, we want to control, okay, did you say the sinner's prayer? And you're like, well, I don't know, but, you know, all of a sudden the Spirit's upon me, and I felt like God breathed on me, and I'm alive. You know, well, you didn't say the sinner's prayer, so you're not, you know, you had to, well, see, how, when did that come? When did they start saying sinner's prayers? You know, I'm looking, I'm not seeing it, you know. Yeah, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with praying a prayer. There's nothing wrong with invitations, but it, God's not limited to those things. And how it works here. Now, in in answer to the what's happening with here, the breathing on the Spirit and the Acts chapter 2, where there's the filling or the baptism of the Spirit, you know, Jesus said he had to leave so that the Spirit could come upon them. Here we see that the Spirit is in them. Okay? There's a different experience. There is the, the indwelling of the Spirit that takes place here. In other places we see that. So they have the Spirit of God in them, but there is the empowering of God's spirit that happens throughout the book of Acts. It didn't just happen one time. It happened a number of times to the disciples. It happened in chapter 2, happened in chapter 4. Chapter 2, it says that they spoke with unknown tongues. Chapter 4, it says that they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so there's these different things that happen when the spirit of God came upon them. And so it's important to recognize that they had the spirit and then the spirit empowered them and use them. It doesn't mean that God can't use other people, 
but this is what happened in, in their lives. And this is what we talk about when we say being born again, is the Spirit of God indwelling us. We now have the breath of God breathed into us, just like Adam did with God. We now do by Jesus because of the cross, the crucifixion and resurrection. And so they received the Spirit. And then what about this? We've got to cover this, and then we'll have to stop here. We'll get to Thomas next week. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Oh, that's kind of heavy. I don't forgive your sins. Do you have that power? Or what's he talking about? This is very much connected to, I'm going to my father, your father, to my God, your God. Okay, there's an identification that's taking place here. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have now the message and we have the means. We are carrying the message. In other words, as the Father sends me, I send you. So we are being sent we have the message, we have the power, we have the representation of Jesus. And so we have the ability to tell people the truth that will allow their sins to be forgiven. And we have the ability to withhold the truth. And so there's a big responsibility here. If you do not forgive them, doesn't mean, well, if you don't forgive those persons, but if you don't take this message of forgiveness to them, how are they going to hear they are not going to hear it. So they're not forgiven if you do not carry the forgiveness to them. There's a responsibility that's being presented here. And Jesus is saying, you receive the Spirit now, take this if you forgive their sins. You're taking the message, how do you forgive their sins? Well, you have to believe on Jesus. It's pointing them to the messenger. My Father, your Father, my God, your God, as the Father sent me, I send you. This is how it's supposed to work. And so there's the continuing of the responsibility that Jesus had now belongs to us. Heavy, important to recognize. Any questions? No? Okay, well, let's pray. And there's like some cool desserts over there. So, Father, there's some powerful things in these verses that are uh, gripping and humbling. Lord, to recognize the work that you've done for us and what you've called us to is overwhelming. And Lord, we thank you for the work of your spirit. We thank you that you breathe still your life into people. And you give us this opportunity to take that life with us to others. And when we breathe the truth of who you are when we tell people and through our own breath, so to speak, in words, share this powerful message, Lord, it is able to bring forgiveness. And Lord, if we will not speak, then we will withhold forgiveness. Lord, powerful thoughts to just contemplate. May we leave here and be a voice for you. May our lives be uh, lives lived for you. And we thank you again for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.